Good morning. devil COVID and with it a man whose voice we really didn't want to hear for a long time. It was really unpleasant for about 10 days and it's taken me three weeks to feel that I'm beginning to get over it and so what I've I've learned through this is that there's nothing mild about this illness and what I really want to avoid is long COVID. I don't want to be feeling that exhaustion that I felt when I was ill for three months or six months after I get it. Mm -hmm. And And that's what's uppermost in my mind, Claire, right now. Ah, the lovely David Nabarro of the WHO with Claire. And not even he could avoid the COVID. Like so many of us, he's been struck down. On Wednesday's News at One, Justin spoke to the HSE's Chief Clinical Officer, Dr Colm Henry. Are we in the middle of another wave of COVID-19 at the moment? Yes, we are in, in the middle of a wave largely driven by these sub-variants of Omicron called BA.4 and BA.5. What we've seen over the past few weeks is this sub-variant of Omicron, which in, enjoys what we call a growth advantage over the previous variants. It's displacing those. It highlights how much uncertainty still remains. If This is not a seasonal virus in the way we understand other viruses. It's a virus for all seasons. How very thoughtful. But if you're thinking, well, I have my COVID, my COVID's over, I've built up immunity. Not so fast. People who have already had the virus, are they getting it again for a second time, maybe a third? Yes, uh, Justin, we're seeing that people who are, as I said, who have got the Delta last year, they're prone to reinfection. Uh, people who even got the one, the earlier subtype of Omicron earlier this year may get reinfected. What I would say, though, is that people, uh, we're seeing a longer lasting effect of vaccination from a serious illness and, um, from, from a, and that includes hospitalisation, intensive care and even death. But we are seeing a considerable pressure on our hospital system as a result because we always have known that if enough people get infected out there in the community, then even if a smaller proportion of those get sick, it does mean increased presentation to the hospital, highlighting those figures you gave earlier of 776 now testing positive for COVID in hospitals, of over, over half of whom are sick with COVID. And, but fortunately, we're seeing uh, two trends that are, offer some hope. One is that the, the incline upwards of hospital cases is is less the, than the incline we saw in March, a slower climb in cases. Secondly, uh, the ICU cases are 28 versus 23 at the end of May. So not much conversion okay. to serious, really serious yet. And thirdly, the experience in Portugal, which is some weeks ahead of us, demonstrates that uh, there's a plateau of four to six weeks and then cases begin to fall. Oh, come on, the fall. But what about the dreaded long COVID? Well, here is Professor Seamus Lenane, consultant in respiratory medicine on Morning Ireland. You run the long COVID clinic at the Beacon. Are you seeing long COVID developing from those who've had the Omicron variant in the same way as you've seen it from past variants? Yeah, I think that's a good point. We we weren't sure as Omicron came in, knowing that it was a milder illness, whether it was going to have the same impact in terms of long COVID. We are certainly seeing um, long COVID coming out of Omicron. Um, I think the international data would suggest that 
it's about 50% of the risk of developing long COVID after Omicron as there was after, say, Delta or Alpha. Um, but certainly it remains a risk. So even though you may have a mild illness, um, you do have to bear in mind that there is a chance that you will end up in this very difficult scenario of having long COVID. <laughs> but what about vaccinations? Surely the jab will get us out of this. Well, here's Professor of Immunology at Maynooth University, Paul Moyna, with Sarah on Drive Time. Minister for Health Stephen Donnelly has now asked Nayak to examine if a fourth vaccine should be given to people aged under 65 later this year. Do you think that that would help in terms of these four monthly waves that we're seeing now um, or, or is it necessary? May help in the short term, sir. I'm not, I'm not convinced in terms of these uh, mass booster uh, programs. The reason being that these vaccines were designed to stop people from getting very sick and to prevent deaths. And they've done a really good job at that, continue to do a really good job on that. When we give boosters, you, you probably get a transient, a short term protective effect from infection in, in, in some people. But that does wane over time. And also we must be aware in terms of the vaccine that we're giving at the moment. That vaccine is based on the variant from 2020. I know some of the companies are now looking at updating that and producing an Omicron-specific one. Mm. But again, we're still lagging behind because that would be based on the BA1, the first sub-variant of Omicron. And BA4 and 5 and BA5 is, is, has moved on as a little bit distant now from that BA1. So I think we need to, and the companies, I think, need to begin to look at new technologies and two things I think they should focus on is in terms of maybe potentially looking at nasal vaccines. So we've heard a lot about antibody mediated immunity and we focus on antibodies in the blood, but that's not the primary site of infection of the virus. It affects the respiratory system. So we need to get antibodies into the respiratory system to try to prevent infection. And then the other thing I think that needs to be focused on, I know companies are working on this, looking at a pan-coronavirus vaccine. So targeting a vaccine against highly conserved parts of the virus that tend not to change as much as this spike protein. So I think we need to begin to look at, you know, new innovative ways in terms of new uh, vaccine technology. And I think companies need to step, step up to that as well. From drive time, COVID. Nothing if not persistent. This week saw NATO leaders gather in Madrid and the summit coincided with a missile strike in a crowded shopping centre in the central Ukrainian city of Kremenchuk. Claire spoke to journalist John Sweeney. You're at the scene of this explosion. Just tell me what you're seeing. I'm looking at a group of Ukrainian firefighters digging through the wreckage looking for human remains. I'm actually inside um, the... The shopping mall, it's vast. Imagine the, one of the biggest shopping malls in Dublin or London. You get a sense of it. And the three quarters of it, the roof has gone entirely. And it's dangerous for the firefighters to work there. And there are people with uh, metal grinders who are going through and cutting through the beams so that they can safely look for the, for the dead. There's about 40 people who are missing. What they're trying to do is to give people something so that they can bury their loved ones. This, Claire, is a monstrous crime. Do you think there was a, a deliberate message from the Russians in the week of, of G7, the NATO yeah. summit, to, to just to destabilise, to let people know but that this is going to be a long-running and dangerous war? The message to the people here is, let's terrify you. Let's try and terrorise you into submission. John Sweeney in Ukraine with Claire.
But what of the measures taken against Russia, the sanctions that might deter Putin from pursuing this war any further? On Monday, Sarah spoke to Chris Weifer, chief executive at business consultancy Macro Advisory. He lives in Moscow and she asked him about life in Russia today. So much talk about the sanctions that have been imposed and the expectation that those will start to have an effect. Have they had an effect or much of an effect on on, on the people living in Russia um, in, in recent months? Not to the extent that was expected when uh, when sanctions started. When we go back to March, there was a lot of talk about an economic crisis, financial collapse, a lot of job losses coming. And it certainly looked like that uh, early on. But uh, the economy has proved very resilient. Um, and, uh, for example, the uh, companies that were not able to import components to keep their factories running have now found alternative uh, import routes via Turkey, via Kazakhstan. So concerns about job losses are nothing like what they were. Um, a lot of companies, of course, we will have heard of uh, global brands that have suspended work in Russia mm. or closed their operations. A lot of these products are now starting to appear online on kind of e-commerce platforms uh, where Russians can can access them again. And you, you will, of course, seen McDonald's which closed and then reopened a couple of weeks ago. Different name, different brand, but it tastes exactly the same. Really? So in that sense, the um, you know ordinary uh, Russians, uh, I won't say that it hasn't been an impact, of course, that would be silly, but it's been more kind of a grinding down. Um, the price increases uh, have been maybe 25 to 35%. Uh, there has been a reduction in, in income. Uh, companies in Russia tend to cut income to preserve jobs rather than let people go. So people are seeing, particularly middle class and cities, have, are seeing a decline in their spending power. And that's beginning to impact them slowly. So not a, a, a crisis situation and, and nothing that's dramatically changed their, their lives. The, the shops are pretty full. There's, there's no shortages in grocery stores. But income is being eroded. And it's more this kind of long term uh, effect. The longer this uh, situation remains, the longer sanctions are in place, then the more that will impact ordinary people in terms of their you know, their lifestyle, their income, their their ability to live the sort of lives that they did before. But it will be a slow deterioration. It's not an economic crisis or a financial crisis or a social crisis, at, at least not at this stage. That is interesting, if not a little dispiriting from Monday's drive time. Now to an interview that some listeners might find particularly distressing. This week, 30-year-old Keen Farrelly from Oldcastle in County Meath, who raped and sexually assaulted his youngest sister, Aoife, when he was a teenager, was jailed for three years. Aoife Farrelly decided to waive her anonymity, and she spoke to Claire yesterday. Because we were such a close-knit family, you know, they thought that they could trust him. And, you know, unfortunately, that is that is really not the case, is that we he absolutely betrayed everyone's trust and he manipulated situations and he he made me even think that it was all in my head and you know that it was somehow normal what he was doing and that it was his way of showing me that he loved me um you know it for years i i almost thought that i deserved the abuse that that i i got from him and it was just it's it's so much for a 6 year old to think of mm-hmm. And to have to deal with, and even you know, when I when I did confide in my parents about it, I was eight, and 
no eight-year-old should have to do that. No eight-year-old should have to try and and articulate how to how to navigate the world and you know try and articulate to my parents that my brother was raping me because no eight-year-old should have to do that. And your fear, I read at the time, was that you felt that you might be taken away from your family if you told. Yes, I was always very, very independent and and very self-aware of and very, very sure of the world around me. But I was still eight and I thought that, you know, I would have been put into a home or or some kind of foster care and, and that. I would be the one that was taken away. But, you know, looking back now, it obviously it's not the case and it should be him that was taken away all those years ago. Once she told her parents, the abuse did stop. But the after effects of the trauma were devastating for Aoife. I started self-harming when I was about 12 years old and um, I started restricting my food around that time as well and I had just started secondary school at that time and was under an immense amount of stress. No 12-year-old should be under but I have really struggled. I've been very open with my mental health. You know, I've I've, I've asked for help. I got the help and my parents made sure that I even went into inpatient treatment last summer and you know, they really, they advocated for me to to get into that inpatient treatment and came to see me and everything. And I spent the guts of the summer there. And it was, I've always said that it was the biggest waste of time. But looking back now, it was, it was almost like a holiday for me. I got 24 hour care. I had specialised therapy for my addiction. I had a, an addiction programme um, you know, I've battled with that since I was about 16, 17, um, drinking alcohol and smoking marijuana and just basically anything that I could get my hands on to cope with what I was going through because I was never given the chance to actually deal with it. And in a way, I almost didn't let myself deal with it because I was in survival mode for 14 years. She's now 21 and two years ago she made the decision to report her brother's abuse to the Gardaí. In court, her brother read a statement of apology. He sat up in the box and he read out a letter that he had written and he addressed me and, I mean, he couldn't even really look at me, to be honest. I, When I addressed him in my victim impact statement, I made sure that I turned round and I made him see my face. But he is he is such a coward, he couldn't even look at me. Mm-hmm. He, he couldn't even look at me. And, you know, it was, I'm so sorry and I've ruined our family, but it, it it's empty. There, It's an empty apology. You know, he can never, I, he can never be forgiven for what he did. I will never forgive him for what he did. And... I don't have to now because I got my justice and I'm getting my closure. And, you know, although it's although it might be a short sentence, it's it's still a sentence and he's still going to pay for what he did. So that is enough for me. And she talked to Claire about the power and the importance of her own victim impact statement. It was such a positive experience for me. I was quite emotional, you know, it was because it was my brother and my parents were were in court and they had to hear the evidence and they had to hear the whole thing. 
and it was all very upsetting. You know, emotions were very high, but knowing that I could speak and he couldn't interrupt me and he couldn't intimidate me anymore and I knew that he was going to be going away and I knew that he was going to be punished for what he did. I sat there and I took my time and I went through it and I eventually addressed him. It was the final paragraph and I says, goodbye, Kian. You are no longer a part of my life. You no longer will take up space in my head. And it was just, it was it was the beginning of the end of of him being a part of my family. And it was so, so amazing to finally have that closure because that's what this all is. You know, it's not, it's not revenge. It's not that I took a disliking to my sibling. It's that I can finally start to put a, a close on this horrific chapter of my life. And I'm into a new chapter of my life. And it is just, it's so positive. I, I'm for the first time in my life, I actually feel so positive about what is coming mm-hmm. and I'm actually planning for the future. Eva Farrelly speaking to Claire Byrne yesterday. Back in a bit. Welcome back. You might have heard an unlikely theme emerging on the radio this week. It started on Sunday evening with Derek. Excrement, faeces, turds, dung, droppings, poo. Call it what you like. The waste products which animals, including us humans, excrete are an inescapable part of life. The sheer quantity produced around the globe each day beggars belief. Entire ecosystems depend on it. A natural fertiliser that recycles nutrients and which is vital for the continuation of food chains. All over the place it was. And Moonigo's Wild had a one-hour special devoted to the topic. A whole 60 minutes and yes, there was an uh factor, but it was also quite fascinating. What exactly is poo made of? We know that it contains waste material that is excreted by the digestive system along with a large dose of bacteria. But what else is lurking in a stool? Dr Patrick Orr from the School of Earth Sciences at University College Dublin. Yeah, if you've walked past a dung heap on a hot summer day and you see that cloud of flies rising up off it, those flies, of course, and the eggs and the maggots and things like that that are associated um, as part of their life cycle, they're all living in and around that. And they and other organisms, worms, for example, it's not uncommon to find them preserved in archaeological settings. And what's happened there is that the organism has either fallen in or it's landed in this poo, for example. And um, as a result of that, then, it's literally been encased in it and turned to stone. The composition of the poo contains the necessary elements to literally replicate the organism that lands on it in minerals. So they will be preserved in the poo. I'm thinking something like the way insects are preserved in amber. Absolutely. Um, In this case, rather than actually being incorporated into the amber and the original tissues preserved, remarkably what happens inside things like latrines and cesspits is that the little fly will end up preserved in minerals because the concentration of those elements in the poo is such that it actually replaces the tissues of the fly or the maggot or whatever has landed in there. So they are quite literally turned into stone inside the mushy pit of poo. 
So you can tell what insects were present maybe Absolutely. 50, 60, 70 million years ago just through its poop. It's mainly used in the more recent archaeological record, though there's no reason why it shouldn't be used in deep time. For example, there's a very famous example of what's believed to be a tyrannosaurid coprolite, and in that there's actually chunks of muscle that weren't digested that have now been turned into mineral, in this case, calcium phosphate. And word of the day might well be coprolites. Here's Nigel Monaghan of the Natural History Museum. When we deal with poo in a natural history museum and as a paleontologist, I'm dealing with very old poo and we have a fancy name for it. It's coprolites, which simply means dung from the ancient Greek, um, copros, and lithos is stone. And paleontologists realised that some of the lumps they were finding in the bedrock along with the bones and all the other exciting things that they were really looking for were actually fossilised poo because they found tiny fragments of fish scales and other things in them in the marine rocks and they realised this must be the remains of somebody's meal and the shapes in particular and the sizes to a degree of that fossil poo can often tell us a lot about the animals that they might belong to and so can the contents because that's basically the mushed up food that can't be fully digested. And we are not going to stop there, oh no, because there is a plant that uses every means at its disposal to protect itself. Take it away Dr Matthew Jebb, Director of the National Botanic Gardens in Glasnevin in Dublin. We're in the palm house here and every year we try to grow a few pots of Mimosa pudica, which is also known as the sensitive plant. It's an amazing leguminous plant, and if you touch its leaves, oh, like they're all close over. They're all it closing over. Up. Yeah. It's a very extraordinary reaction, and that's one of the sort of thrills of this plant that it seems almost like an animal the way it, it moves rather than the rest of the plant world that doesn't do anything when you touch it. Now, whilst that's been long known about, it was only very recently, about four or five years ago, that a research group in uh, Israel discovered that the roots of this plant produce an, an appalling smell, a sulfurous smell. So one of the jokes that's now arisen is this actually is the farting plant. Because if you disturb its roots, it has little hairs on them that release these sulfurous compounds that smell revolting. Usually we sow the plants on these big pots and we allow them to grow. We don't plant them on, we don't pot, repot them. Um, they're quite sensitive as the name implies, to being repotted, so it's easier and safer to grow them in the final pot. So it was only because they were repotting these plants they suddenly noticed this. And what's the advantage of the smell? What happens is anything disturbing the roots of this plant is likely to get this appalling stench and maybe it repels them. So any animal burrowing in the ground under this plant will be repelled by this smell and it's very probable that this is serving a, an excellent way of protecting the plant from disturbance. How it's working or why it evolved is totally unknown. It's just one of these extraordinary facts. Nobody would have suspected that a plant would fart until this Israeli group discovered it by pure chance, handling a plant that we've known about for hundreds of years, but nobody observed it in that particular way. From Mooney Goes Wild, and thank you for those sound effects. But not even Claire Byrne herself was immune to the lure of this topic. On Monday, she talked about a new bill proposing an increase in fines for €150 up to €1,500 for dog fouling. So she took this opportunity to talk to Patrick Costello of the Green Party, who thinks this increase might be a good incentive. 
it is a big radical change. But used any fines do come in to invest in getting people, uh, inspectors out, making it easier to catch people. And then as we make it easier to catch people, we can bring the fine down. So there's that same kind of uh, risk arithmetic in people's heads. Because dog, dog fouling, not picking up after your dog, is an incredibly selfish thing. No dispute there. But Claire is also offering an alternative, a workaround, if you will. Also on the line, by the way, is James Madden, veterinary officer with Leitrim County Council. There's a place in Wicklow people would be familiar with called Kilrudderry House and Gardens and they encourage people not to use those plastic bags because they see them as a pollutant and they say if your dog fouls, kick it off the path into the hedgerow. What do you think of that idea? Well, I, look, I, I didn't realise that and I think I'll have to go have a chat with them and find out how it's working. Because certainly, as I say, international research says that dog fouling that's not picked up leads to too much phosphorus in the ground. In the same way, we have a nitrates directive and we control phosphorus in terms of farm pollutants. In international studies that I've been reading, that not picking up the dog fouling can lead to an increase in phosphorus and over fertilization and algae blooms and biodiversity problems and all of that sort of because stuff. Because if you so had it, your it, way, if I if I kick the dog poo into the into the ditch, I'm going to get a fine, a fifteen hundred euro fine. If I pick the dog poo up in a non biodegradable plastic bag and hang it from a tree, I get off scot free. No, because hanging it off, picking it up in the bag is the first step. You still need to put it in a bin. Hanging it on a tree is not is not dealing with your dog. Happens all the time. James Madden, oh, James Madden dealing with this. It happens all the time. Am I right? Yes, that's 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 very interesting. There, it does happen all the time. People people pick up dog dog poop and hang it off trees, but that in itself is an offence under the Litter Act. Okay, so uh, I'd be done for that as well. So, what so do you think? Keep an eye out for her. She's mad just to kick it away. But for more fresh thinking on this one, back to Patrick Costello. There are other creative Sorry, things we can do. Like there was a bin, uh, a park in Spain I was reading about that the local council provided free Wi-Fi and the strength of that Wi-Fi was based on the weight of bags in the dog poo bins as a way of encouraging people to pick them up. All right, that's very inventive. And there are street lights, there are gas street lights in Wales that are being run through an anaerobic digester. So basically, they're composting, they're breaking down the dog poo. So you're avoiding the question of the bags and the pollution that way and the pollution of the dogs to power street lights. All right, we'll leave it there. Now that is an interesting thought. From Mondays Today with Claire Byrne. And on Tuesday's Liveline, a more serious aspect to the whole topic when people got in touch about their very urgent need to use the loo and the indignity of having to beg to use the facilities. 815. I don't want to give a health warning, though I do younger ears, but I don't feel like giving it on this one because it really is important for everybody. We're talking, it began with a call from Bridget who has... Uh, a condition where she it's all sorts of colitis where she might need to use the bathroom at short notice and unpredictably and she's had difficulty in the last few days coffee shop said they didn't have a loo which I think is I don't think that's legal you have to have a, a loo if you're in a coffee shop okay uh, Mary Lyon. and one of the people who got in touch was Siobhan she had developed difficulties after the birth of her child over 20 years ago and she was refreshingly frank about how this issue affected her life. Do you know if I had to go to Dublin today for something and I, I, I was, I, my whole day is revolved around using the bathroom because I said I could yeah. get up in the morning okay. and yeah. um, I could just think, oh, I need to go to the bathroom and I might make it. Yeah. Um, and it's, it is terrible. And yeah. I mean, I remember yeah. 
going to um, an occupational therapist about going back to work one time, and, and he said to me, you know, you know, a man, like, would you not just wear a nappy? And I remember thinking, oh, my God. Oh no, my and God. I started crying because I thought, yeah. I'm, I was 41 at the time, and I had a little baby who was in nappies. And I thought, you know, you know, this is a man saying that to you, you know. But yeah. thank God my, my job has been fantastic. Brilliant, you know, they're, brilliant, they're brilliant. actually brilliant. But, and um, the other thing, Siobhan, because you have you have um, uh, highlighted something there. Like we, nobody knows in yeah. the in the, in a workplace or indeed in a, a shopping place or in a bus or whatever. Uh, nobody knows what other burdens people have on them that that we're unaware of. We we should take more. Look, Joe, I'm an, I'm an invalidity because of, of what is wrong with me. And okay. I, look, to the world, I look like yeah. the most happy-go-lucky person yeah. that there is nothing wrong with me. But, yet, if you asked me to go somewhere in the morning with you, mm. I would kind of say, I'd put it off till about oh. 1 or 2 o'clock because I know that I have to do bathroom stuff. You, you have know? to tell, yeah. And that I'm yeah. only comfortable at home doing because I might yeah, need course, to shower. Of course, You know, there's a lot of things. Yeah. And, um, you know, like now I can speak about it. I remember Vicky Whelan being on the Late Late one night and she yeah. said to Ryan Poverty about, you know, she spends her whole day about worrying about her poop. Yeah. And I remember yeah. if she can say that on telly, Brilliant. you know what, yeah. there's no yeah. shame in it. You know, it's yeah. not yeah. the stigma it used to be. People are talking about it. Um, and there's so many, you know, okay, poops. Okay. Everyone poops. Exactly. <laughs> and, and, and Siobhan, as I used to say to my children, if you don't poop, you die eventually. <laughs> you need, we need yeah. to. It's really important. OK, stay with us. And on that note, back in a bit. Welcome back. And now to film reviews. Yesterday evening slash afternoon evening, I offered through uh, Top Gun, the original, and not Maverick. That's fine. I haven't seen that. The top, I've never seen Top Gun. Sat on my couch. Uh, it failed every test. It failed. Did I, did, did I play Wordle? Yes. Did I play Wordscapes? Yes. Did I send a message to family? Yeah. Yeah. How's how's the holiday? What? Why are you doing texting me? Like, how's the holiday? You normally call me. Yeah, but I say, I don't want to look at Tom Cruise sweating. And is it Kelly Mc, McGillis? Is that was that the actress? Gorgeous. I like it. But they did this really eighties every time. Tom Cruise came on the screen and went near your one or or she went near your man any time you just heard okay we get it but it's just every time they'd appear you just hear how dare you do that sir and then they'd get into their they were having a you know canoodle and it was done in in a silhouette but the silhouette was so intense that you, all I saw was Tom Cruise's tongue going down her throat. I was like, no. It's like, and it, they, they'd be kind of have a row. And then he'd jump on his motorbike and go off in a, in a big huff because she embarrassed him in the class. And then she chased after him in her beautiful car. And then he's, they're looking at you to go, how dare you? How dare you? And then just when you know, I mean, the, the row is always going to end in. Oh. Every time you heard this, you thought, okay, get a room. Okay, we get it every time. Not a fan. But on Arena, the professionals were out. Reviewers Ruth Barton and Paul Whittington. Tarkovsky, Scorsese. No. Minions, the rise of Gru. Paul, I hear you have, are often referred to as being a minions whisperer. Um, why, why, do, why do the minions vex film critics so much? 
Well, I think, you know, from a certain point of view, they could be considered irritating. Um, they, they speak kind of Esperanto gibberish and uh, with a kind of he- helium overtones. <laughs> And they, um, they, 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 they buzz about and they're, they're slapstick creations. The interesting thing is the first time I saw the first one, Despicable Me, was before I had a child. And I thought, ho, ho. And the second time I saw it was with a child. And I thought, ah, now I see. Because these <laughs> minions speak to children. They really do. And I'm, as I'm sure you know. So I, I, I can see the appeal. And certainly the, 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 some of these films have been not bad. Have been not, not bad. <laughs> Ooh, well, they might sneer, but Sean, as ever, looking for deeper meaning. All of these big franchises, has, has there been any academic study on the Minions and what they might or might not portray in terms of film? In terms of post-capitalist society and, yeah, and our, exactly you know, our neoliberal culture and the, and the loss of individualism. <laughs> and I don't know, because I haven't been to that conference. I'm not going. But I can, I'm sure there is an earnest PhD student mm. sitting as we speak, losing sleep over exactly these, these questions. Well, step up author, academic and father Kevin Power, who joined joined Claire to dissect the good, the bad and the downright subversive of kids' cartoons. I have some problems with Paw Patrol um, f- for the way in which it's sort of, it, you can read it as kind of propaganda for, uh, you know, authoritarian <laughs> <laughs> tendencies in, in, you know, the human world, the grown-up world rather. Um, but and do not start him on Peppa Pig. I got in trouble on Twitter recently for complaining that uh, a book about Peppa going to Ireland was uh, um, covert British imperialist propaganda. Um, <laughs> Just, can't get away with criticising Peppa. It ended up in the Daily Mail. I was the man who cancelled Peppa. Um, but I, I didn't mean to because I love Peppa. I want to say that officially now while I can. Sweet relief all round. And that links in no way whatsoever to Wednesday's live line, Graves, all prompted by a call from Jim. My parents bought this double family grave uh, to accommodate eight family members. Now there are six family members already interned in this double grave. Okay. But unfortunately, <clears throat> myself, my brother, the two remaining uh, uh, proposed internees, we've been denied access to our family grave. In other words, yeah. we've, we've been denied the opportunity and our right to be interned in the family grave, thus completing the eight internees. The grave was full and closed, and Jim was understandably upset. The calls came flooding in and getting right into the business of grave digging was David McGowan. And for him, a collapsed coffin might even be a bonus. If it's a family grave and there's six people in it, obviously those first two coffins would have went in first. And there's a good chance that those coffins would have collapsed, which would give you a bit of depth. Now, all you need is 12 to 15 inches of clay over the last coffin. That's the rule of thumb. And it can be concreted after, if Jim was the last person to go into that grave, it could be concreted afterwards. No, a coffin is roughly about 12 to 15 inches in depth, normally, mm-hmm. right? So if you're putting 50, allowing 15 inches of clay over that last coffin, that's three foot. So all they require is three foot to get Jim into that grave. And if they collapse, if, and if it's collapsed already, it yeah. means that the first two coffins that were in there as I said to you, would be collapsed. But in Jim's favour, it could give him the three foot that's required to have an internment okay. in there. So you reckon it can be salvaged? I think so, yeah. But how, pray tell, does this sit with Jim? Jim, would you be 
after God forbid you're you're interred and and Desmond, God forbid, is interred, would you be prepared to let concrete go on top of your coffin, Jim? I have no problem with that, Joe. Okay. In fact, I'm listening to your friend you're there talking man. about it. What he says makes absolute sense. Ready, steady, go for Jim. But if you heard Joe's little quip, well, he was enjoying himself on this one. Your 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 grave story. You're dying to tell it. <gasps> Shocking, but they were. Here's Paul. My dad said, "Do you want to buy it?" And I said, "Yeah." <laughs> and is it a three-seater or a six-seater? I think it's a three-seater. Yeah, three-seater with 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 um, road frontage. It's right at the front of the, the cemetery, so it it'll be sawed after now. You don't have to walk down to the end of the back of the cemetery. That's you know. True. They do say it's all about location, but size also matters. We live at the back of a graveyard, a Franciscan graveyard in Carrick Bay, Carrick and Shore. Right. So we were going up to the graveyard and these two, we knew the grave diggers and they were down and they were laying blocks either side of the grave. And geez, we were amazed at this anyhow. And they, they were walking away and you know, just watching them laying the blocks and they came up to ground level and this man arrived on a bike. Yeah. A well-known man, a religious man in the town, yeah. Paddy Tobin. And he was unusual for the time, Joe, that he was about six foot four and he had a huge bike, green bike, like a rally bike. Yeah. And he had a, a, a lantern on the front of it with a candle in it. So there were steps up to the up to the where the grave was being dug. Okay. The grave diggers were putting straw on the bottom of the grave when when we looked down and they put a ladder down. Up comes Paddy Tobin and he said, "Help, good day to the diggers and all that." So <laughs> Paddy is ready. Uh, he went down the ladder. Yes. He went down the ladder into the grave. Yeah. As I'm standing here. Okay. I know now the children would be traumatised getting counselling, but we took no notice of it. I watched away, and uh, he laid out on the grave. <laughs> In the straw. Oh, he lay down on the grave. He lay down full length on the grave. Just at the back of my house, still the grave. I could find it out, yeah. And what's and it, a, a Louis Copeland made-to-measure grave? It, 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 they knew his measurements, anyhow. They knew what they were at. And, 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 and did he fit? He fit. And it came, his head popped up and he said, that's a lovely job, boys. Well done. <laughs> went down the steps onto his bike, Paddy Tobin did, and off he went. From Liveline. And if sex and death go hand in hand, let's get to the other. So tell me this, Professor Love. Um, you examined. No, I'm, I'm sorry. I, no, I do no. apologise. We won't call you Professor Love for the rest from me. Of the that's, that's your new moniker. So, Professor Love, if oh I may, you examined um, how attractiveness relates to getting messages. How, how did that work out? By the way, Professor Love is not the worst nickname I have. (laughs) (laughs) You know, UCD students are very imaginative. But but anyway. (laughs) That's actually Taha Yassari, Associate Professor of Sociology slash Love at UCD. And he talked about a questionnaire filled out by eHarmony users which asked them to rate their own attractiveness and general... And from that, what we could glean about their profiles, swipes and success rate. People who self-rated more attractive generally received more messages, but up to a certain point. Men who rated themselves 10 out of 10 received fewer messages than the ones who rated themselves 7 out of 10. I guess there are two reasons here. If uh, a man in this case think of themselves as 10 out of 10, Probably they don't have the greatest personality. That probably comes comes across uh, from other parts of the profile. But then also there is another effect, and you know, that's the out-of-link phenomena. Why I emphasize on men, because what I said is not exactly the same for female profiles, for women profiles. Actually, um, 
for women profile, it's almost exactly as we expect. Like the ones who rated themselves 10 out of 10 receive many more messages than any other profiles because I guess men always try, whereas there is this effect that is well documented that uh, women have this kind of perception that, oh, if someone is out of my league, I better not even try. So the 10 out of 10 male is put down as a cocky git, whereas the 10 out of 10 female is held up as attractive. Is that it? That's true. And speaking of men who might well rate themselves as 10 out of 10, Catherine in Foray was talking to Paula Gahan, a flight attendant, who'd identified the various types of flyers she had encountered over the years, including this specimen. Next up is the Marlborough man. Yes. Oh, I have met so many of these. You have. I knew you have. Oh, Jesus, I have met so many of these morons. Go on. (laughs) Yes. So it's not just me. I think what it is, now I think they're harmless because they're always at a certain age and you know, there's these fellas maybe like late 50s to early 70s and I don't know what it is back in the day, this was an attractive look, having a load of chest hair coming out of your shirt. Yeah, yeah. And these jeans, I mean, these jeans that come from like the 1992 Garth Brooks World Tour, you know what I mean? Yeah, these the Wranglers. bootleg jeans, yeah. And brown, te- they tended to wear jeans? brown shoes as well. <laughs> well, it's those lads, right? <laughs> And I, I don't know what it is, but it's like no one ever told these men of this generation that they're boring. So they're, you're, you're, I'm stuck with them in the galley. They've had a few drinks and they're telling me all these jokes. They got out of a Christmas cracker in 1972. Oh. And, you know, you just have to kind of listen to it, you know. But I think they're fairly harmless. I do honestly think there's a generation of men who never were told, Catherine, they were never told they were boring. Mm. And how do you deal with that in the galley? They're very tight spaces. Um, oh, yeah, they're tight spaces and there's no escape. That's there's the no thing escape. About, um, you can't go there's anywhere. No, I'm at 35,000 feet. I've got nowhere to go. So everything has to be dealt with tact. I cannot do anything. You know, I, I can't just say, look, I'm out of here. Yeah. You know, so you have to be tactful. You have to play along. Um, oh. Sometimes I'll give them a drink, but it's not a real drink. It's a fakey, fakey drink. Yes. It's like a drink, but what you do is you get the alcohol and you rub it around the rim. So they think they're having a drink, but they're actually drinking water. Ooh, sneaky. Well, that is it for this week's playback. Thank you for listening. Talk to you next week.